ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The following is a very convincing and frankly masterful reenactment of a key scene in the final episode of Succession. If you do not want the finale spoiled, please turn away. Beverly, listen, please. I beg you. Listen, I can do this. I don't think you'd be good at it. What? What? I don't even believe you. I don't. I don't think you would be good at hosting Stop Everything Solo. No. For f**k's sake, Beverly. I feel like if I don't get to do this, I, I feel like that's it. Like, I might die. Please. You can't. You can't do it. Because you killed someone. Uh, which? Wh- which? Which? How many have you killed? Stop everything. Ooh, what the hell just happened there? Beverly, you're now accusing me of murder on the public broadcaster. That really escalated quickly. Yes, Benjamin, I am. Wow, that's it. That's Mm -hmm. it. You're just accusing me of murder. Well, I guess you're going to be the solo host of the show now. I'm just unravelling here. The plan is all coming to fruition. No, 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 no. I couldn't possibly do this without you. Now... Seriously, that is a taste of what is to come a little later, because we will be talking about the finale of Succession. All will be explained in due course. So this one's not an easy one for us, Ben, but I think that we should talk about it. It's been on our minds for the last week or so. We didn't really have the proper space to talk about it because we were on the road last week. And this is one that hits really close to home, right? Because it's my work home. It's our broadcast Mm -hmm, home. It's mm -hmm. the ABC. And it's what's happened with our colleague, Stan Grant, who's one of the most respected broadcasters and journalists at the ABC, but also in this country. And here he is saying, I have had enough of the torrent of racist abuse that has come my way ever since I appeared on the ABC's Coronation broadcast. And I've got to actually stop doing my life's work for now because it's too much. That's so much to process. We've talked about it a lot, but now we're going to try to talk about it into these microphones, which is tough. I can feel my body kind of change shape to accommodate this conversation. I feel like it's almost a conversation I don't want to have because you and I personally know that whenever you bring up race, you discuss racism, there will be consequences. Stan has faced them. And I know that when I talk to ABC colleagues who are First Nations people are not white, essentially, the conversation that keeps coming up is if this is what's happened to Stan, as you say, one of the most respected broadcasters, one of the most senior voices at the ABC and a regular on our screens, if that's what's happening to Stan, what chance do the rest of us have here? Yeah. Look, it's Mm. been super hard. There have been a lot of tough feelings, and we know what our colleagues are going through. And we could talk a lot about the behavior of other media organizations. We could talk a lot about what we face from certain members of the audience via text and tweet and the abuse that we all do see. But I actually want to bring it back to Stan's own words, because when I read Stan's column announcing he was stepping back, there was a lot in there. But there are two single words that I continuously come back to, and they have stayed with me, and I know that I'm not the only person that they're staying with, and that is institutional failure. Because when Stan was able to publish those words and point the finger back at us and say, it's institutional failure that he experienced. Those two words have had so much impact. 
that is what I want to pick apart. I'm glad you've highlighted those words. I'm really grateful to Stan Grant for having written those words. And to be honest, I think when this news story first broke, and it hasn't just been a niche Australian media news story, like this has been in headlines in CNN, Der Spiegel, Al Jazeera, BBC. This has made headlines all around the world. It's a big moment of reckoning for Australian media. I think when the story first broke, it was very much framed as terrible, abusive, racist audience members against Stan Grant and how terrible that he has been dragged by the public. And that is definitely a very true dimension to this conversation because you and I and so many of our colleagues know, Beverly, that It's people real. It will, happens. Yeah, it's it ugly. Happens. It's violence. We've all experienced it. Mm-hmm. And I think there is no ABC on-air presenter on TV or on radio who has not experienced this if they are not a white person, basically. Women experience it, queer people experience it, people of colour, First Nations of people experience it disproportionately. That is accepted. That's right. And that's been pointed out by the ABC itself. At the same time, I'm so grateful to Stan pointing out that for him, it's an institutional failure because I think it's also a story about the ABC itself. And I'm glad that we've given ourselves time to talk about this story because, first of all, it takes time to process all of this stuff. And secondly, I think the story has evolved beyond the idea that it's just about the racism of people attacking Stan Grant and also now becoming a story about what systemic racism and structural racism and exclusion looks like and the consequences of that. Well, the thing is, it doesn't just look like very easy to identify abuse. When we talk about institutional failure, you know, that is one that hits very close to home. And I would not be saying this if Stan had not written this in his column. I would not feel safe to say this. But now that he has, we kind of have leave to talk about it. Like speaking for myself, I'm someone who has both experienced institutional failure and institutional support when it comes to racist stuff that has happened to me while working at the ABC Mm. as an Asian woman. And That sense of not being safe in your workplace, not being supported, is one of the worst, most lonely, terrible things that you can feel in the course of doing your work. The thing that is now cracking open with Stan saying this is that we who experience this as part of our work, we are empowered now to say more publicly. I think a lot is already said behind the scenes, but sometimes... There is progress and there's recognition. I don't want to discount that. There have been apologies from Justin Stevens. There have been apologies from the managing director of the ABC to Stan. And that's really, really important. And there are lots of people who work behind the scenes to make the ABC a better place. But it can also sometimes feel like quite slow and lonely. It's isolating. The question now that Stan has afforded us when he says institutional failure is what next? How do we fix this? How do we actually confront it in this huge organization and make it a better and safer place, a more open place for us to work and feel safe in? Because it's one thing to receive racist abuse. What compounds that loneliness that you're talking about is when people in charge of you and your workplace are not necessarily equipped to know what to do. And yes, that can be addressed by things like training, through education and things like that. But when the power structures around you don't represent the Australian community in which you live, there is a deficit there. There's a knowledge deficit, but there's also a lived experience deficit and there's a lack of understanding 
often about what to do. I would say in the past few years, there's been an increased visibility of non-white presenters on especially ABC TV. But when you look at the board and the leadership team, and I do acknowledge that the board's actually appointed by the Governor General on recommendations from the federal government. But when you look at the leadership team of the ABC structure of the 10 members of the leadership team, nine are white, that doesn't reflect the Australian public and would be feeling similarly aghast if they were nine out of 10 men, for instance. Well, you're ta- looking at it from the top down, from the power structure. I'm thinking of it from the lowest, lowest level as an employee. I think it's really important that people have rallied in support of Stan. It is late, but it is still important. I look forward to the day when a low status behind the scenes employee gets that same level of support and recognition for what they're going through. And then when that happens, when we rally around that person who has the bravery to speak up, that's the day that I think we have really changed. And Stan said this himself, it's not just about people who have privilege in the platform. It's about everybody else who doesn't have the power. That's what's really important when it comes to this kind of institutional change. And maybe we can even take that further. I look forward to the day where such a rally isn't needed at all. Absolutely. So Alone Australia, the homegrown version of the documentary survival series, which has had multiple U.S. and Scandinavian seasons, has, according to SBS, become its most successful original series of all time. And it's been a slow burn. This is one of the rare series where the ratings actually climbed as the show continued. Look, a lot of people, Beverly, compare this show to Survivor. It's the closest comparison, but nothing like Mm, it. Exactly. You're exposed to the elements, but that's kind of where the comparisons end. And you are by yourself in the wilderness with no crews and just limited equipment. You win $250,000 if you last the longest. And in case you aren't aware of it now, Beverly, you're about to talk to the winner Gina Chick. I was team Gina very early on. When I saw her build that cozy looking shelter and I heard her explain how she put on 19 kilos strategically so she would have a pad of fat to burn through as she went through all the labor of setting up camp, I thought, this woman has a solid plan. I thought to myself as I lay on my couch eating chocolates and (laughs) potato chips in my pajamas, like, that lady, she's got a plan. You were basically saying to yourself, you know what I'm doing through Gina? I'm preparing for the show now. I was putting on my own fat pad. That's right. (laughs) And it's so joyous the way she talks about it, the way in the early episode she's just like, I can't even get up. I'm so fat Mm -hmm. right now. I love that. And this is the moment after 67 days solo surviving on the west coast of Lutruita slash Tasmania that Gina Chick found out she had won the first season of Alone Australia. It's really strange not knowing when this will end. I find myself saying, when I get out of here, I'm going to dot, dot, dot. So when I get out of here, I'm going to take my friends out to dinner. When I get out of here, I'm going to give my mum the biggest hug she's ever had in her life, you know. When I get out of here, I'm going to take my niece Amy out camping. They're the kinds of things. It's more that this place is giving me a... No way! What the f***? Yeah. Holy, oh my God. You did it. 
We watched Gina cry, dance, greet platypus, build that amazing shelter, catch fish and eel and chew on a wallaby ribcage. And I had the chance to spend some one-on-one time with her recently. Gina Chick, welcome to Stop Everything. Hi. Thank you. It's great to have you here, Gina. We've all watched the series and you came across as one of the participants who had the most joyous connection to that very forbidding location that you had in Lutruita, Tasmania in alone. And we watched you dance on the moss. I'd love to hear more about your relationship with nature and how it came to be. I grew up with parents who loved camping and loved the outdoors. They were teachers at the high school that I went to. Let me say that was fun, going to high school with a surname of Chick with Mr and Mrs Chick both teaching there in an Aussie school. So mum and dad used to take six weeks long service leave every three years and add it onto the school holidays. So they'd end up with about three months of a holiday. And we'd all pile into the car and go driving around Australia and camp every night in a different location. And my two sisters and I would be able to choose where we went. We'd go to information centres and pick up brochures and yeah, say, oh, I want to go to this canyon. I want to go to that gorge. Or, I want to go somewhere with a water slide. But basically, we grew up outside in nature, around Jervis Bay, all over Australia. And for me, it's just a no-brainer to keep deepening into that kind of nature connection. What a foundation to start with. You've been sitting on the knowledge that you're the first winner of Alone Australia for the better part of the year. We, the public, we've known for a much shorter time. How is this win feeling now that the rest of us know what happened? It's quite surreal. I had to swallow the secret of it for nine months and I don't really do secrets. I'm a chronic oversharer. So to have something so big that I couldn't tell anyone, it almost gave me psychic indigestion. And so the way that I buried the secret was pretty much to forget about it. That meant that when I was watching the show, I was going through again my whole journey plus learning everybody else's. And when it came to the win, It was very surreal because as I was watching that last episode, I was barracking for Mike as if I was just a viewer going, oh, come on, Mike. Oh, you've got it. Oh, nearly, nearly. And then I'd have these moments of going, oh, wait, gee, you won. Like, you know how this ends. So when it finally happened and now I can speak about it, there's this huge release of being able to let the secret out. And it's quite unreal because there's been such a huge outpouring of public love, but also a dropping in of the wisdom of nature connection through my story that makes people want to come up and talk to me and talk about the win and talk about their own journey with nature connection. So I feel like at the moment I'm an ambassador for Big Mama Gaia and I'm walking around and it's now become my day job. Were you a fan of the show before you signed up? Absolutely. I only discovered it about three weeks before it started casting in Australia. I'd resisted watching it for, you know, eight years or something because I was, meh, reality shows, meh, survival shows, no way. But enough people who I know had told me about it, they'd said, you know, you really need to see this. Finally, I buckled and watched one episode with scepticism and very quickly got hooked and then binged the entire thing. I had that process that many people go through, which is to become an armchair aloner and Mm. just be like, oh, no, don't pull the fish out of the water. No, no, no. Ah, no, what'd you do that for? Or why are you building that shelter? All of that stuff. The armchair experts. And then I started thinking, you know what? I'd love to do this, but it's in North America and I can't. And then 
I wonder if it would ever come to Australia. Three weeks later, there was the casting call and uh, yeah, boom. Yeah, that is some timing. So three weeks between you watching the show and then seeing mm-hmm. the casting call. Mm-hmm. What then was the step? Did you immediately think, ah, oh, yeah, that's for me? How did you go from being like a three-week fan to wanting to be on the show and actually reaching out? I got a whole lot of emails in my inbox from people sending me the casting information and I think there was a producer in there as well. I think that what they did was go through the people who taught survival and did the kind of things I do and probably emailed a lot of people. But there was an email from a producer in there and it was like a hook setting and I could not get it out of my mind. I'd go to sleep at night thinking about it. I'd wake up thinking about it. And I didn't have any videos because I'm usually on the other side of the camera. And in the application form, there's all this stuff about having videos, of course, because they want to see that you can shoot, that you can tell a story. So I went up to the mountain where I spent lockdown in 2020 in the wilderness and I built a shelter and filmed it for a day and had so much fun doing that. Sent it off and and the producer who I was talking to was like, yep, that's great. You don't need to do anything else. I was like, yeah, bugger that. I then went out and filmed probably another half a dozen little videos because I was having so much fun. And, you know, I hadn't got in. I'd just sent my application form in, but the hook had set so deeply that I basically assumed I was going to get in and started preparing accordingly and just jumped on the ride. So preparing accordingly, we know part of that was putting on 19 kilos before Mm -hmm. you started the show. Mm -hmm. What was that alone prep diet? What did that look like? I worked with an amazing friend of mine and she's obsessed with all things nutritional. She got an epigenetics test so we could look at my hormones and when would be a good time for me to eat and when was a good time to fast. And she gave me this whole program with things like, you know, sweet potato with basically half a tub of butter on it and really healthy stuff, which I did. But I wasn't putting on weight fast enough. So then I went off piste a bit and just started basically throwing entire lolly bags down my head and going to the bakery and going, see all of those Portuguese tarts? I think I'll have 15 of those. (laughs) Did you actually eat them in one sitting just to put on the weight? (laughs) Sometimes. There's a very funny story. I used to like chocolate licorice bullets, you know, those little, you know, licorice bullets. I bought a 460 gram pack of chocolate licorice bullets and ate them all at once. What? I know. Not one of my wisest moves. The first shot happened probably about four hours later. Yeah, it's a laxative, isn't it? Yeah. So the first shot was a few hours later and the last one was about three days later. And it was in the middle of La Nina and I slept on the balcony of the shack that I was living in with a dear sister, Karina. And all I would hear as I went charging into the bush with a shovel to try and, you know, dig a hole and in the torrential rain every five minutes was the sound of her laughing, (laughs) laughing fit to burst at my misfortune. So I probably should have stuck to the sweet potato and all of the butter. Wow. Okay. (laughs) You're conjuring so many pictures from the liquid bullets to the Portuguese. No, no, it's incredible. (laughs) What a range. I wasn't expecting that. I mean, really, truly to put on weight in a healthy manner, that's not the way to do it. It really isn't. But because I had to put on weight really fast and I knew that having a good padding of fat would be 
essential to my journey out there and you know make like a bear and hibernate it really just became I just need to get all the carbs in and I probably did myself a bit of a mischief by doing it that way as well and I wouldn't recommend it but I did also manage to put on 19 kilos and all up I think out there I might have lost 24 so I only lost six kilos from my starting weight and I was well within a healthy range when I came out so it worked. What a helpful bit of padding to have honestly Mm. the value of that. Mm Mm-hmm. Another change was that you had to wear shoes for a loan. And I'm curious, <laughs> you know, in that environment and you being used to not wearing shoes, what was the argument for you wearing shoes in that situation? It came from within. I mean, I had to wear shoes to get out there. But really, once we we're out there, as long as we kept the cameras going, we could do whatever we wanted within the the rules of the competition. And so I didn't have to wear shoes, but I knew that if I got a foot injury, that would be it for me and I would be out. In my normal life, I go bushwalking barefoot. It's like I have leather on the bottoms of my feet. In that wet environment with all of that mud and with all of the dead trees and sticks and the slipperiness, it would have been foolish to go barefoot. So I spent a lot of time barefoot, but I was also quite miserable with how much I had to wear shoes. Are you wearing shoes right now? I have to ask. No, I am not. She's barefoot in the studio. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yep. We know that one of your 10 chosen survival items was a huge block of salt. And we know mm-hmm. that you were the only participant not to choose a sleeping bag as an item. Mm-hmm. When I first saw that, I thought, oh my God, what is she doing? But it worked out for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> were you overall satisfied with your other choices? Yeah, I'm really happy with what I chose. Not taking a sleeping bag was definitely a commitment and a choice. And when I look at the footage of Mike's amazing sleeping bag that was essentially a shelter, like he didn't need to build a beautiful shelter because his sleeping bag was like a home. And I didn't have that. My coat had, you know, gaps where the buttons wouldn't reach. I had this ritual every night of basically turning it so that my feet would be in the hood and having to shuffle and wriggle my way into it and then use paracord to sew myself into the shoulders to keep the heat in. And every time I would turn in the night, I'd have to turn in it to keep it in the same position. I was so uncomfortable that I would sleep for maybe 15 to 20 minutes at a time and then I'd have to turn because I'd be in pain and that whole turning process and the going back to sleep would be probably 45 minutes to an hour before I'd fall asleep again. So I slept in little tiny bite-sized shifts and probably if I'd had a sleeping bag that wouldn't have been the case. However, the cost to me of taking a sleeping bag would have been massive. I would have been absolutely miserable sleeping in one and sleeping in that coat was like sleeping in a hug I mean it was a cold and painful hug a lot of the time but it was (laughs) it was still a hug yeah and what did not bring a sleeping bag allow you to choose instead salt yeah which was the other item that I was probably the most grateful for I originally took the salt as bait I knew that we'd be live trapping. We found that out a couple of weeks before we went out. And I don't know anything about trapping. I'm not a trapper. I don't, I've never done it. So I do know that you need a bait that isn't available on the landscape because then that will lure animals into this weird contraption that they would normally go, hell no, I'm not going in that thing. That smells horrible and it looks weird. But if there's something that's irresistible, then they'll go in. So... In the Northern Hemisphere, salt is an amazing bait for deer. You know, you can put out a salt lick. And I thought, well, 
everything needs salt. So the Aussie animals, they need it as well. So I had all of these plans for setting up all these amazing traps and having salt in there and living large. I did put salt in a few different places with the trail cams to see, you know, animals coming towards it. Yeah, they were not interested in my salt at all. I did not get one sniff at the salt, but what I did get was the benefits for myself, which were the electrolytes, which kept my blood pressure at a decent level so I didn't get tapped out for blood pressure, plus being able to fry up eel so that it fries in its own fat and it's salted and the, the skin becomes like batter. And all of a sudden I have got essentially the most amazing gourmet chicken burger, but without the bun or the kimchi or the chicken. But it meant that all the food that I ate was delicious. Salt is transformative. I will not be surprised if I see other alone participants mm -hmm. follow in those footsteps, Gina. Absolutely. I'd love to hear what it was like for you to watch the series as a spectator and as a participant. What were the moments from the other participants' journey that really surprised you or stopped you in your tracks? The first one that comes to mind is the incredible vulnerability and courage of Chris when he left the cameras rolling for a PTSD storm. Now, I've worked with people in emotional process for 30 years and I still learnt something from seeing a PTSD storm in action, seeing the First Nations cast members, their relationship with country, both explicit and implicit in their journeys. I found that their innate understanding of what the land was saying, and for two of them at least, the instant realisation that mob would not be on that country in winter and the unwillingness to contort for a TV show for something that was right in their bones to leave. Like I thought that was the most beautiful teaching about the deeper wisdom of listening to your own rightness. And then I thought Dwayne's beautiful realisation that without mob, we're not designed to survive alone. And then everybody, I loved their journeys, watching Kate gag on Eel, still makes me want to wet my pants laughing. Mike never giving up and coming up with the most incredible solutions and refining them to become more and more efficient. What a human. Seeing Michael not eating for 30 days or something and then just like making this massive move through camp. Seeing him go through that country like you get a little bit of a taste for it when he gets lost in his first segment. You cannot imagine what it's like going through that country. It's like going through green barbed wire. To get 10 metres can take sometimes half an hour. To move one and a half kilometres with all of that gear, I have no idea how he did that. Everybody had such amazing moments and such highlights. I asked you what moment stood out for you as a viewer, but I think you gave us a really pivotal and raw and memorable moment when you remembered your daughter Blaze on her birthday. Mm. That was such, I mean, it stopped me in my tracks. It really did. And my heart just went out to you. It was such mm. a true expression of grief and makes me emotional just thinking about it now. What was it like for you to watch that moment back? And did you have conversations with the producers about how that moment would be shown? I know they did check in, but I gave permission pretty much right away. When I left the cameras rolling, I knew what I was doing. I had a moment of, okay, here it is. It's coming. Okay, do I want to leave the cameras going? And it was a, such a hell yes. 
Because I think that in our culture in particular, there's a fear of emotion, almost like emotion is is bad or it's wrong or it's scary and we don't have a language for it. We don't have tools for it. We don't teach emotional processing in schools. We teach, you know, maths and maths is great. But emotional processing is also great because guess what? We've all got them and they come through like weather. And in my experience, if we let emotions roll through like weather, then there's a beginning and there's an end. And I wanted to show that because that's how I live. When grief comes, I let it come and I let it have its way with me. And then on the other side, I'm usually in a very peaceful place. I can talk about that and people go, yes, yes, I understand. But when you see it happening, when you feel it in another human, I think that this ka-chunk moment can happen in a body of like, oh, that's what that is. I can relate to that. And then maybe people might have a different relationship with their own grief, with their own loss or with their own rage or whatever the big emotions that we all have rolling around. So I knew I wanted to leave the cameras rolling. And also I really trusted Jules, the producer who did that segment to handle it well. I mean, I didn't see it until it came out but I thought that she did a beautiful job and SBS and ITV handled it really beautifully. And when you did finally see it in an episode, I just wonder what your response was to it again in that moment. It was a twofold response. On one hand, I was a witness and it was quite meta actually seeing this woman going through that and empathising with this woman on the TV who was going through that. But then there's also the, oh, that woman is me. I had a cry when I saw it. Yeah, it was and is a really profound moment in the series. And when there's a clip of it that turns up, there's a part of me that's like, okay, where am I? Am I driving? You know, am I okay to have a cry right now? Because there's a good chance that it's going to come. But I feel such gratitude to just have a vehicle to be able to show that grief and to be able to talk about my little one because it keeps her alive. Mm. We spoke to the executive producer of Alone, Rima Dayer, ahead of the series launch, and we learned then that participants had to lug 70 kilos of camera gear into the bush. How did you find that part of the experience, not just surviving, but the filming of it? It was beautiful and it was horrible. Yeah. I am an artist and a photographer and a visual artist. I tell stories. And so to have a supported medium to be able to tell stories through this visual medium was amazing. Once I got the hang of it, I'd set all the cameras up. I'd be so excited. Oh, my goodness, I get to make art. I, <laughs> how did I get so lucky? And then there's the survival part, which meant that I'd be having to lug around cameras to do anything and everything. And in that territory, because there was so much mud, it was so slippery and clay, I would be falling in the mud, you know, two, three, five times a day to do that with one hand holding a camera all the time got so frustrating. I got so that I wanted to just chuck the cameras in the water. And I think I won the prize for breaking the most gear oh, as well. Congratulations. Yeah, the, the singular honour. Mm. And I got, I'd just be like, oh, God, no, I've broken another camera. Oh, they're going to kick me off. <laughs> well, they didn't, Gina. They didn't. No. Yeah. I have to say, I found your shots particularly beautiful. The way mm. you framed up nature and the way you shot, I just thought this person has a real visual sense. And hearing now that you're a photographer, that really makes sense. I want to talk about 
the post alone experience because I was looking at your Instagram and it said on one post that you were utterly ravenous. And I love this expression. You could eat the ass out of a low flying duck, which is <laughs> great. I say ass, not arse, because I don't have the Australian <laughs> accent. Your first meal after leaving your campsite was lasagna in a plastic takeaway container. What was the rest of that refeeding and reentry process like? The refeeding program, it was a little, you know, lasagna in a tub, but it was nutritionally balanced, designed, I think, for athletes. You know, they'd gotten it so that it had all of the elements that I needed. And I don't know if you saw that clip that I had on my Instagram. Uh, somebody videoed me sitting on the steps eating that. I did see that, yeah. <laughs> you look out of this world in that oh, shot. It's just alien. Yeah. I look at that shot and it's like absolutely so fresh and so unproduced as well. It's just like me sitting in this, having a When Harry Met Sally moment if Sally was raised by wolves. And to me, I look at that and I think that woman looks like she's been raised by wolves. Once that hit my system and the flavour of that, I can still taste the cheese in that lasagna. You know how Garfield loves lasagna? (laughs) (laughs) I don't even like lasagna, but I definitely ate that one. And then the refeeding program just meant that there was a very strict metering out of food while we had medical tests and blood tests and, you know, meetings with the doctors to see our progress so that our systems didn't get overwhelmed with glucose, which can cause a heart attack. I'd never heard of refeeding syndrome. All the nurses and doctors told me, yep, it's a thing. I definitely had some frustration because coming out of that, of course, I just wanted to eat all the things right now. She wanted a bag of licorice bullets. Oh, God, never again. (laughs) (laughs) But I did want things like a steak or some seafood, you know, something I didn't have to catch myself, some greens. Oh, my goodness, bok choy. For the first few days, it was very limited until, well, you know, I'd get the all clear to be able to go to the next step in refeeding. At the time, it seemed to last forever. But yeah, I remember the very first proper meal I had. It was so good. Is there anything that happened during your 67 days that didn't make it to the final cut that you wish people could see? Basically, the last 30 days that I was out there didn't make the cut because We only had one episode, really, for Mike and I to duke it out for 34 days and it had to all get tied up, you know, in that time. And because there was all the time for the Gina wins bit and yay, Lee arrives and all of that and also for Mike's tap out, I think there was only about seven minutes that was available for telling any of the stories of anything that I got up to in the last 30 days. I caught six eels probably about four or five days before I got brought out. So I had so much food. I had all of these moments where I would talk to the lake and I would ask for what I needed. What you'll see in my stories on Alone Australia is that I had this incredible relationship with nature and I've described it as feeling like I died and dissolved and got regrown as part of that land in the web of life that was there. And just like anything in life asks Big Mama to get its needs met, that's what I was doing. So I'd go to the lake and I'd say, All right, I know that you want me to tell a story of Nature Connection. I know that's why I'm here. If you want me to tell this story, I'm going to need some food. Then I'd get a fish. The day I got the wallaby, I had had this big chat with the lake. saying, I'm going to need an animal if you want me to tell this story. There's not enough fat on these fish. And then that was the night that I got the wallaby. And with the eels, the wallaby has just about run out and I had a big chat. 
eels have got fat, I need eels. And it was a frenzy of eels. I would have loved to have, have had that shown. Plus, I made an eel trap. There was the footage in the, one of the shorts where I'm licking a tree. I went into the water to get snagged fish and there was one scene where I have a tantrum after I don't get the fish after I've dived in the water. There's so many things, but that's the nature of the beast. Like We gave 35 to 40 hours a week. So that's, you know, what, 160 hours of footage that they had to break down to seven minutes for the last episode. Well, Gina, it sounds like you were thriving out there. Anybody listening who wants to try it for Alone Australia, what's your advice? My advice is that theory only gets you so far. You can be an absolute legend in your backyard making your fires and reading all about all the traps and things. But until you've gone out into the wilderness with not much and spent say three or four days with no food and maybe even no sleeping bag, sleeping on the ground with a fire and feeling what that's like, it's going to be a shock because drop shock is real. When when, um, cast members get dropped in the first few days, it's almost like this overwhelmed paralysis. So if you can get that out of the way before you go out there, you'll be having a huge advantage. And also, it's amazing. Go out, actually live it, go do it, get your shoes off, get a line in the water, catch a fish, cook it on a fire, eat it. You'll learn more from that than a million YouTubes. Gina Chick, thank you and congratulations on your win on Alone Australia. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great having a chat. Alone Australia is available to stream on SBS On Demand. Consider this a massive spoiler alert for the final episode of Succession. It's a spoiler. We're telling you now. This is a spoiler. I don't think you'd be good at it. What? I don't don't even believe you. I don't believe you. I don't. I don't think that you would be good at this. For sake, Shiv! It, it's, it's six to six, okay. and we don't have Shiv's vote. This doesn't make, like, logic! Where's the logic? No, I just don't think you'd be good at it. I feel like, if I don't get to do this, I, I, I feel like that's it. Like, I might, I might, like I, I might die. Shiv, can we go in that room? Can you just vote? Please. Please. You can't be CEO. You can't, because you killed someone. What? Ooh, that's a mic drop. Beverly, I have a lot of siblings. We've had a lot of arguments over the years. I've never had an argument on that level. And even in this show, Succession, where there have been so many arguments between siblings, I gasped in that moment because I think that's the ultimate mic drop in a grisly finale of a grisly, grisly show. And so fitting, I think, that that family altercation happened within the like the transparent glass boardroom oh. walls because this is what this family has always been. It's been a family, but it's been intertwined with all these business interests. And so, of course, they would have a knockdown, drag out fight in full view of board members deciding their fate of their fortune. In full view, but also in full stereo sound. Yeah, they would have heard everything. (laughs) Those are not soundproof. Not soundproof. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So this is, of course, the denouement of Succession, which has been so many things. It's been a soap opera. It's been a comedy. It's been Shakespeare. It's been biblical. It's been horrific. I don't think there's been a show like it. And when it first debuted, I remember thinking, am I going to stick with this show about deeply, deeply hideous people? But by episode four of season one, I'm like, like, I am all in this show about 
American power. Get a tattoo. And a dysfunctional family. Finales are famously tricky and can be so divisive among audiences. How did Jesse Armstrong and company land this one, Benjamin Law? You're so right, Beverly, because HBO does produce amazing prestige drama, but the finales can be a little bit of a mixed bag. You think of Game of Thrones, felt pretty rushed, or it can be quite sublime, you know, like six feet under or maybe somewhere in between like The Sopranos. But I think with Succession... Everyone was asking, can they land this 90-minute plane? Because so much has come up in the final season. A funeral, a death, an American election. What else is there left to pack in here? But I do think one of the key things that makes this finale a success is the core writing team of Succession is British. And I think they were always going to have a very nihilistic take on American power. Even though the show, I think, has been circling for seasons around this stasis between siblings, once you had very early on in the season the shock death of Logan Roy, that was this catapult to kick the siblings out of this stasis and give them something really juicy to wrestle with. The promise was already in the show title, Succession. And then you just have this crescendo of all this past history that comes to bear. When Shiv says, you did something all the way back, in season one that I'm going to bring up now as the final ultimate mic drop, you know the siblings will not come back from this fight. And it's so messy too. It's just the rawness of it. I did note that the fight is kind of the pivotal moment, but actually the key moment, right, is that boardroom vote and whether Kendall wins or loses, whether he succeeds or not. And it was an anticlimax because it happened while he was out of the room, just like Logan Roy died while we were out of the room. And he goes back in and they're just like, it's done. He didn't even get to be there for that moment because he was busy fighting with his siblings. Oh, it's so brutal, Beverly, that even when Kendall, in pure shock, walks out just a little bit shell-shocked and leaving his body into the elevator as an everyman now. He's no longer important. He has lost all of his power. Leave your past at the door. He gets into the lift and the way that it's directed is just a random person joins him in the lift. Like he has become a random person. That name doesn't hold any sway anymore. It's the most brutal direction of a scene that you could have possibly landed with. You know, what I thought was interesting too is the end scene between Tom and Shiv. He goes up to her at one point and says, I've got a car in 20 minutes. Do you want to come? And she shakes her head no. But then what happens when Tom gets in the car? Guess who's there? And you know she's there. Shivroy. Yeah. And what's up with the very light hand palming? Oh. What does that mean? I feel like that gesture and the way she put her hand on, but she didn't fully grip. That yeah. is such a tiny thing, but so important. We could analyze that to death. It's pure cinema, people. And when you think about the machinations that have led here, Shiv finds out in the finale that essentially she has lost. She will not be the sibling that comes out on top, right? But with the final board vote that is up to her, she actually has power in that moment. And if the board vote had happened any other way, she probably would have voted with Kendall as agreed before. But when it comes down to a tie and she is the deciding vote, you know what it reminds me of, Beverly? It's Survivor and the swing <laughs> vote holds a lot of power. What are you going to do? It was with a it? blind side. It was a blind side. So, is she going to anoint the brother who's always frozen her out, the brother that she absolutely detests and is clearly incompetent, or does she go with 
Matson, who has completely undermined and betrayed her, who's about to install her estranged husband, who has also undermined and betrayed her as hand of the king. But she could come back, right? Because in that sort of light hand grasping, what are you interpreting there? I think in that moment, the implication is, I have your child yes. in me. That's where it gets like so Shakespearean. The next chapter of the succession story is already on train, right? And what I think that hand grasping, it's not even a grasp. It's no, the it's the lightest touch of touches. Yes. Possible. There's revulsion in that touch and Absolute contempt. Absolute revulsion. Like, I'm doing this, but I can barely bring myself to make physical contact with you. But in a way, and this is grim, it feels like to me their marriage is more transparent than ever. It's more truthful. More transactional. Mm-hmm. This is where it gets really dark, Beverly. I think in that moment where she almost takes Tom's hand, she has become her mother. She mm-hmm. has become the woman that she hates. She's made a deal. She's absolutely uninterested in parenting and she's adjacent to power but with no real power of her own. And the very, very end of the episode where we see Kendall Roy wandering around lower Manhattan. I've read some quotes from Jeremy Strong, who plays him, that they shot alternate endings. And one of them shows him actually climbing the fence of the seawall as if to suggest that he will truly take matters into his own hands or do something. And then he says, but I'm sure the version that Jesse Armstrong went with is better. (laughs) That is Classic, classic, right? Classic. Jeremy Strong, he's such a method actor to the point where there's that sequence in the finale where he has been anointed by his siblings as a king and they do meal fit for a king. He's such a method actor that he drank what they put in that blender. Which included spit, right? Spit, Sarah Snook, spit. He just so needs to be Kendall Roy. But it doesn't matter whether we see that happening or not because whether Kendall survives this in air quotes physically or not. He hasn't survived. He has been annihilated. I mean, he still gets lots of money, right? He still gets lots of money. He's still incredibly wealthy. And that's what I love about this show. They'll always have money. And when you have that much money, what else is there to grasp for? It's for power and influence. And when you've lost that, you've lost the, in Kendall's case, will to live. There are so many favourite moments in the finale, but also in the lead-up. I think Lady Caroline, the three younger Roy siblings' mother, she is like MVP for me. The way that she is at the funeral gathering the other women of Logan Roy. And here's a really great tidbit for you, Beverly. The woman she grabs, Sally Ann, who we've never seen before, she introduces to Marsha, Logan's kind of ex-ish wife, and Carrie, the mistress. And she's like, Sally Ann was my Carrie, but it's all water under the bridge. Let's sit together. The actor who plays Sally Ann is Brian Cox's wife in real life. And I just find that delicious. They really are all Logan Roy's women. Wow, I love those Easter eggs. Hey, you know what? Harriet Walter plays the mother of the three Roy children of prominence in succession. Yeah, that's Caroline. Yeah, Harriet Walter also plays the mother of Rebecca Waddingham in Ted Lasso. And so she appeared in two monumental finales. Is this the finale of Ted Lasso, the series? People are being cagey, but it certainly felt like a finale, Ben. Tell me about the Ted Lasso finale, because I haven't kept up with Ted Lasso. And They are two very, very different shows. In my mind, probably polar opposites. Listen, I am very aware of all of the critiques of Ted Lasso season three, that it has gone off the rails, has become bloated, has lost itself. 
But let me say this: when I try to watch the show and apply the critiques that I see, guess what? My pleasure from watching that show then is compromised. And I think, if anything, the affection that this show managed to cultivate in its viewers is something that I think deserves to be pure and wholesome and respected. So, as much as I recognize all of those critiques, I'm going to say to you right now that I only watch this show with affection. I'm allowed to have that. Fans are allowed to have that. We can、don't、be aware of yes. Don't yuck our yum. And so these are the two conflicting truths that I hold in my mind, Benjamin Law. Is it a very different show to the Ted Lasso of season one? In tone, in ambition, in scope, for better or for worse. Absolutely, you've had three seasons of this show. It's gone from shorter episodes to longer episodes. The universe has spun out into different worlds, which has been one of the critiques. But also, characters do have to do new things and go different places. So this finale, we're going to call it a finale because that's that's what it sounds like. That's what it feels like. There's so much going on. So. Again, spoiler alert! Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Okay, this aired more recently than the Succession finale, so there is a greater chance of spoiling it. Ted decides to quit the club. It's time for him to go home and be a father to his son Henry. Rebecca is thinking about selling the football club. Richmond is finally in the Premier League Championship after being at the bottom for so long. The love triangle: Jamie courting Keeley while Roy is trying to win her back. Trent Crim has nearly finished his book. What about the psychic predictions that were given to Rebecca early on that she would have a family? Still, no sign of that. Is everything really okay between Ted and Nate? Have they had their actual apology conversation where they understand each other and they make amends? Will we ever get a real explanation of why Nate quit Rupert's team and who will replace Ted as the coach of Richmond FC? These are all the things that we're thinking about as we go into this finale, and they are. All more or less answered in a satisfying way or in a checklisty way. I could say it's checklisty, but am I going to yuck my yum? I'm like, oh, <laughs> there's a lot happening. You're not questioning why you're attracted to this show. <laughs> <laughs> it's past that now. The water's under the bridge. We just have to go with it. The other question mark is, look, this is kind of a fandom thing that I don't agree with, right? A lot of the Ted Lasso fandom has been shipping hard Ted Lasso and Rebecca. Yeah, right from the start, right from season one. That's right, because how can it be that a male and female heterosexual pair of coworkers who get along so well and have a great working relationship, how can it be that they don't want to jump into bed together? Like, come on! Like sometimes the best friendships that you make are those that you make. At work with people that you don't do that with, and that's actually part of the beauty of that relationship. Someone who knows you as a person, someone who knows you as a worker, who knows that kind of whole self of you, and that's great. Are you talking to me right now? Look, I'm like you know a beautiful friendship. You're just drawing boundaries with me. You can just say it to my face. <laughs> I was just going to talk about our wonderful friendship, but you had to make it weird, okay? And so the beginning of the episode really plays with that. Rebecca's there in her kitchen. Elegant, chomping on a croissant, and in walks Ted, looking very much like Bedhead. And they say, "Do you want to talk about it?" And so that was a way for the writers of the show to address and knock on the head this entire shipping idea that some fans have. I don't. 
Does their friendship have a satisfying arc? I remember in some ways Ted Lasso and Rebecca were kind of almost set as like antagonist or obstacle. Absolutely. Rebecca wanted to destroy Ted at the beginning. Uh Uh-huh. And they've kind of come full circle in a way that's satisfying for you who loves this show? Look, to a certain extent, yes. There's so much to tick through in this episode. And I think you were never going to get anything but a happy ending. Just like I think with Succession, you could predict that having Kendall Roy come out on top was not going to be the satisfying ending that viewers would want. Succession really does have the bleakest ever after ending here. And I was thinking about Succession and how it captures a very specific moment in time of how we regard America now, you know, like in the TV shows and the movies. I don't think there's really a taste for this blind worship of American power after what's happened over the last decade. America doesn't believe in its own propaganda anymore. Succession, I think, is a mirror to all of that. This is how power in America works through the media and money. Ted Lasso was also, in some ways, a show about cross-oceanic understanding between cultures, America and Britain. Do you think it says something about the moment we live in now and what we can be striving towards? Yeah, that's interesting because we've got Ted Lasso kind of like Dorothy going home to Kansas, right? But Beard at the last moment decides to stay. It's his home now. He loves it there. And we have this whole sequence about all of the great things that happen at Richmond after Ted goes. So can it be read as kind of like this hokey, wholesome, happy-go-lucky American who also does have psychological trauma comes to the UK, which is also dealing with its own trauma of Brexit and all this xenophobia. I think that's probably too much of a realistic reading. I think that whole show is all about cultivating good feelings. And it does acknowledge some realities of life. It it does address racism. It does address being queer in sport and the struggle of coming out. It does address those issues, but in a soft Ted Lasso happiness way. It's all about believe. I'm sure there's an analysis in there, but I mean, even thinking about the way they portray football, the round ball game there, right? Like there's no soccer hooligans in Ted Lasso. Definitely a fantasy land. We are always operating in a more wholesome world than our own. As always, Stop Everything is available to listen to in your own time for as long as you like on the ABC Listen app. And if you are listening to us on the CBC or anywhere else, you can find us on all the other major podcasting apps. Stop Everything's producer is Sarah Mashman. Our sound engineer is Carrie Dell. And Stop Everything is produced on the lands of the Eora and Kulin nations and on the land of the Muanina people from country around Nipaluna. Benjamin Law, is it time for us to link arms and stage a corporate takeover? Please, Beverly, I beg you, I can do this. Let's do it. I don't think you can. Oh, is this because I killed that person? <laughs> ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.